while we hear God's word from 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. Please have a seat. You know that I like, because when I was, uh, when my kids were younger, they always liked it if I had something that they could listen to because um, uh, they learned actually a lot about me growing up and a lot about our family. So I always, I always had uh, something to say to help you think about the sermon. Now, uh, we're going to talk about something that um, is a mystery that's been shown, a mystery that people have come to understand. Now, when we uh, lived in Maryland, we moved 2,000 miles away, 2,000 miles away, that's a long ways. We moved to Nebraska, and our daughter, Jessica, was only two years old, and she didn't understand very much about how big a move that was, what it was like to live in a different place, different house, uh, to be growing up 
someplace she'd never been before. Now, she grew up, and she grew up there for 10 years anyway, so she learned about it. But it wasn't until she was older that she began to understand. And sometimes grown-ups will tell you, you'll understand when you get bigger, when you get older. You know, sometimes mommies and daddies say that. You'll understand when you get bigger. Well, people in the Old Testament didn't understand everything about Jesus until they got to heaven. Till Abraham and David and others got to heaven, they didn't understand everything about Jesus being born in the city of Bethlehem or the town of Bethlehem. Uh, they didn't understand the things about Jesus dying on the cross, though they knew that they had to, had to have a savior. And so if you don't understand everything, that's okay because God's going to help you. God's going to help you learn because God is good. So let's pray that we can all learn, okay? Father, we pray that you'll bless this time. Help us to learn from your word uh, what it means to uh, see the glories of Jesus the wonders of salvation. Thank you that you have taken so much time, so many years to make sure that we would understand it. Thank you that we don't have to wonder anymore uh, who Jesus is or when he would come or what it would be like because we know now. Help us to believe in him for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Harry Truman became President of the United States uh, in April of 1945, one of the first things that happened is that uh, his advisors told him about the Manhattan Project. Even though he had been vice president, um, he was not told about uh, the development of the atomic bomb. Just a few months after he became president, though, he had to make the decision to drop the first atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima in uh, August of 1945. Uh, it was a secret that probably President Truman uh, wished that he hadn't found out about, but he did. But we have a secret that's been told to us. Now, Peter doesn't use the word mystery, but he's talking about the same thing that Paul talks about when he uses the word mystery. Because in the Bible, a mystery means something that was revealed by God and wouldn't have been known if God hadn't revealed it. Now, here in verses 10 to 12 that we're going to be looking at, the greatest mystery of all is the coming of Jesus and all that would be happening to Jesus. This is the greatest secret ever revealed, but it's a secret that is to be made known by the church to the whole world. So there are three things we're going to look at. Salvation is the subject of Old Testament prophecy. Salvation is 
the subject of New Testament preaching and salvation is the subject of angelic study. Salvation is the subject of Old Testament prophecy. Salvation is the subject of New Testament preaching and salvation is the subject of angelic prophecy or study. Now, the Old Testament spoke of grace. There was grace in the Old Testament. Uh, but Peter says uh, it's the grace that would come to us. Now, the people in Asia Minor were probably not in the minds of Moses or uh, David uh, when they uh, wrote things in the Old Testament. Uh, but the idea that the Messiah would come uh, was there and that salvation was for them and for us as well. Now we have a hard time where we are standing on this side of the cross to look back and, and understand what it would have been like for Isaiah. Isaiah writes chapter 53. And do you wonder if Isaiah was just pondering, what does this mean? What does this mean? Who's this, this one that's going to come and, and suffer in this way and bear sin? Or David, when he writes Psalm 22, and the things that he puts there are uh, prophetic of the suffering of Christ. And, and did, did David wonder, what is this like? What's going on here? Or Daniel, when Daniel in chapter 7 uh, writes about the, the Son of Man coming and appearing before the throne of glory and being given a kingdom and, and called to serve. And did Daniel wonder, who is the Son of Man going to be? So Peter says that the prophets wrote before the coming of Christ, but they wrote about the coming of Christ without understanding all that was being written. Now, in 1787, the framers of our Constitution were meeting in Philadelphia in the summer. And at that time, there were about 4 million people along the eastern seaboard of the United States. We still operate under that same Constitution, don't we? And yet we have a nation that stretches from coast to coast, including Hawaii and Alaska, uh, and we have over 300 million people, not 4 million people, but over 300 million people in our country. And yet we're living under the same document, the Constitution. Those men in Philadelphia could not have pictured people living in Nome, Alaska, or Oahu, Hawaii. They could not have pictured people uh, going to the moon. They, they could not have pictured the things that have been accomplished by the United States in these last 250 years. The spirit of Christ, Peter says, was uncovering. He uses the word 
apocalyptu, the word that comes up in the book of Revelation, the uncovering, the revealing, the pulling back of the curtain. The Apostle Paul helps us understand this. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the Old Testament is our book, our book, Christian's book. Now, we know that the Jews still read the Torah and the writings and so forth, but it really is book we claim because we are in the covenant, just like Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, and all the rest. We read the Old Testament to learn how God's people lived according to God's law, how they lived under his providence, how they lived in times when their faith was challenged. The scriptures give us hope because they show God's faithfulness to his people through generation after generation after generation. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them, the Old Testament people, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. The Old Testament was written for our instruction, not just the Jews who were the people of God, but the people taken from among the Gentiles that God would call to himself. Because Abraham, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, Abraham was to be the father of a multitude of nations. And so that promise is not just Jacob's 12 sons, but it's all the Gentiles, including the ones in Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and all the rest. But there's an important thing that is said there in that verse. Upon whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages have, has come because Christ has come. Christ brings about the end of the age. There is only the, the return of Christ that we are awaiting. You know, sometimes when we sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, we're, we're singing kind of in the mindset of, of the Jews. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, pour to set thy people free. But really, we're still looking for Jesus, aren't we? He is still the long expected Jesus for us. We want him to come. We want him to come and return for us. His first coming is the hinge point of history. History changes everything when Jesus Christ comes because Jesus is coming as God come in the flesh. God coming in our likeness. God coming to take to himself a reasonable soul and a true body. So Christ comes to die the sinner's death, stand in the sinner's place, bear the sinner's guilt, and carry that weight for us. Because of that, this is the most critical thing that has ever happened. You've got to think about that. That nothing that man has invented no printing press, no internet, 
Nothing man has ever invented comes close to the wonder and the glory of God coming in the flesh. Now the end of the ages has come because Jesus has come not only to live, but also to die and be resurrected. Look at these verses. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They were looking, they were studying. The, the words that uh, Peter uses here uh, kind of are building up and building up and building up. They're, they're meditating on, on what they've just written. Uh, Isaiah is looking at chapter 53 and, and he's prayerfully saying, what does this mean? And, and we know that Abraham saw Jesus' day. He had thought about it. He had thought about the promises of God and he thought about it and, he's, and Jesus says that he saw that day. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, they're saturated with God and yet they couldn't grasp the fullness of of the glory that would come in the person of the Son of God, coming in the power of the Spirit to redeem his people. The Holy Spirit had to be the author, the, the final author, we might say, to prompt them to eagerly search right out and think about this promise, this promise that's fulfilled in the preaching of the apostles. So if salvation is the subject of the Old Testament prophets, it's also the subject of the New Testament preaching. Now Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now there is discussion. Does does uh, Paul mean uh, the New Testament prophets? Does he mean the Old Testament prophets? Does he mean both? We can't answer that question at this point, uh, or I won't try and answer it anyway. But the idea is that the same message is being preached all along the way. It's preached about the Christ who would come and who came, who died and was resurrected. Now, it's, it's a key thing to catch what uh, he says at the end of verse 11. Look at the end of verse 11. The Spirit of Christ was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories or the glories to follow. Because this is the pattern of the New Testament. Jesus, when he talks to the disciples, will always talk about the cross first and then the resurrection. He mentions that again and again. And it's important because that's the pattern for our lives. We may not like it, but that's the pattern for our lives. Our lives consist of suffering first, trial first, and then glories to follow. Now, if you were one of the original readers of Peter's letter, living in what's 
modern-day Turkey, you might experience these things. This year, the mobs come through and they begin calling you names, maybe beat you up. The next year, they burn down your shop. The following year, the Roman government arrests you and charges you with heresy because you're not worshiping the emperor. And they either put you in prison or put you in the Colosseum and make you suffer. The reason you study a book like 1 Peter is because we are living in the same world. They lived in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Their world was hostile to Christ. Our world is hostile to Christ. We've lived for too long in America in the illusion that everybody's going to like us eventually. We're, we're good people, aren't we? We do good stuff. But that's no longer true, is it? We all know that. That we're not anymore the good guys. Matter of fact, there's a book out now about that. That we're not the good guys anymore. Christians are living in a world that's hostile to Christ. And it's increasingly so. Because as Peter tells us, we are pilgrims. We're strangers. We're aliens. We're not living here as though this were our home. Christ suffered, he was glorified, and so when we suffer, we also look to the glory to come. Think about the the passage that we just read in the earlier verses. He says we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven. It's ahead of us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, In this, though we've been grieved by various trials, the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is going to be resulting in the praise and glory uh, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then we will see him. So Peter is giving us a future-oriented hope a hope that does look ahead, a hope that has in mind what we can expect, and that's the glory to follow. Jesus Christ has come to redeem his bride, the church, us. And because he has done that, we can look forward to seeing the fruit of that terrible day on Mount Calvary, which is our own redemption being fulfilled. It's the same spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit that inspired the prophets, that worked through the apostles, the the apostles who evangelized and preached Christ, the good news of Christ dying for sinners and being raised again for our justification. Christ has said that his spirit would come and would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's what he's still doing. And we heard those wonderful words from uh, John chapter 4 this morning about Christ being the living water and then creating water in us. That's water to feed the nations, to satisfy the thirst of the nations. Because we have to put before people the hope and the promise 
that there is one Savior, the only Savior of God's elect, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Short of Catechism 21. The apostles did that when they were mocked and persecuted, and we have to do the same thing. We can't be silent. Again, we heard that in Sunday school. We can't be silent in our day and time. We have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us, that there is no salvation in any other name. And we have to be ready to declare that God has given a son, his beloved son, and he is the only redeemer. Now, this picture is so marvelous that it enthralls it enthralls the angels of heaven. That's our last thing. The last part of verse 12. And this is one of the most mysterious most mysterious and awe-inspiring verses in scripture. Look at, look at it. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you, the people to whom Peter is writing, in the things that have now been announced to you, those in Asia, Bithynia, etc., through those who preach the gospel to you, like the apostles, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, try to get your mind wrapped around that. It says in Luke 15:10 that the angels of heaven rejoice when a sinner is saved. They rejoice when someone comes to faith in Christ. When a child for the first time says, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my savior. The angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. These angels behold the face of God, or they hide their, hide their eyes from God's glory, anyway. And they cry out, "Holy, holy is the, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The heaven and earth are full of His glory." And yet they're rejoicing over the conversion of people like us. Those angels look on us. They're made to live forever in God's presence. They're created to be immortal. And they look on us. And if by reason of strength we live fourscore years, <laughs> we're doing good. Uh, they look on us who are creatures who are like the grass of the field. Today here and gone tomorrow. They look on us and they they rejoice when a sinner comes to repentance. What what the glory of God is as they see God blessing and exalting sinners like us. Now Peter doesn't mean that the angels are ignorant of the work of Christ. Angels announce Jesus coming. They they announce it to Mary and Joseph. Uh, they're there proclaiming to the shepherds. Uh, they announce the resurrection. Um, the angels are not ignorant, I don't think. I think what Peter means is that the salvation 
of sinners is so amazing, such a cosmic act of grace and mercy to take people like us and to bring us into the family of God, to cause us to be adopted, to be received as the sons and daughters of God, to see God the Son coming and dying, being executed, dying on the cross, a horrible death on the cross, and lying under the power of death, to see God having patience with us to draw us step by step to faith in Christ and to work in us step by step to transform us and make us like the Son of God. The angels are filled with wonder at the work of God. God's glory displayed and how how we are redeemed at the cost of our redemption. Peter says they stoop down. Angels stoop down. You you can hardly picture it, but it's the same word that's used for stooping when when, uh, James or when Peter and John and Mary Magdalene stooped down to go into the tomb. They stooped down, lowered themselves to to go into the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And the angels are stooping down to to look and to see how we are being redeemed at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, the, the salvation of the church through Jesus' suffering and humiliation is such an amazing thing that Christ, the, the Holy Son of God, is taking us and making us his people and his bride the bride for whom he died. It's more glorious, more wonderful, more God-honoring than than they could have imagined. You know, have you had that experience in your life that that something has, has happened? You know, you've probably all got smartphones, and those smartphones have more computing capacity than the first computer. Isn't that amazing? Who could have imagined that you could hold something in your hand that has more capacity to do things and a greater range of things than that computer that filled a room? (laughs) It's amazing. We couldn't have imagined it. And yet, this is more amazing. God has taken dust for that's what we are and he says I have a place in heaven for you I have a place here with my son I know your name I have ruled your life and ordered your life for this glory this day my son is my beloved and and I have given him to redeem you. It's not that the angels are somehow envious of us. It's that the angels are praising God for our salvation. And it's a terrible thing 
if we are so casual, so blasé about what God has done in Jesus Christ. Like Peter's first readers, we can easily see only the suffering, the difficulty, and don't get hold of the glory that's to be ours, the inheritance, an inheritance that, as Peter writes, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This salvation was predicted by the prophets. It was preached by the apostles in the word that we have. And the angels themselves are filled with wonder. But are we ever wondering about it? Now, if you're not a Christian, it's not going to mean anything to you. Well, hey, this is typical Christian stuff. But if you are a believer, are you ever filled with wonder that God would save you? The old Scott, whom I love, Robert Layton, put it this way. Here in the free grace of God is comfort enough for all times. When I'm at the best, I ought not, I dare not, rely upon myself. When I'm at the worst, I may and should rely upon Christ and his sufficient grace. Though I be the vilest of sinners that ever came to him, yet I know that he is more gracious than I am sinful. Get that? Though I be the vilest of sinners that ever came to him, yet I know that he is more gracious than I am sinful. Yea, the more my sin is, the more glory he will be to his grace to pardon it. He will appear the richer and the angels rejoice. God means to comfort suffering Christians, Christians who are experience the persecution, rejection of the world, the hostility of the world, the suffering that comes through through illness, through the sorrow of losing friends, and through facing death ourselves. If we suffer now, we remember that our Savior also faced suffering, that glory might come. Because those are the patterns, and this business of health and wealth and prosperity and you have your best life now. It's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is God uses all of it to make us more like the Son of God. God's message from the first to the last, as he inspired the prophets, as he inspired the apostles, as he appoints the holy angels as servants to the people of God, is that it's not man's will, but it's his will that triumphs. It's true because his will is not our woe, but for the people of God, it's glory. But for the people who will not listen, it's the terrible judgment of everlasting punishment. So we believe the testimony of the apostles and prophets. We believe the testimony that's declared to us about the glory to follow. You know, C.S. Lewis used a picture that I've used again and again I love. He says, we're far too easily satisfied. We are like children who are playing in the mud of the gutter and we think that this is better than a holiday at the sea. 
And sometimes we value our salvation so little. The glory of the resurrected Christ is meant to help us live now without despair and without fear, obeying and serving a God who made us and made our salvation certain by his soul, the Son. And again, Robert Layton wrote, The soul that's persuaded of this salvation in the midst of storms and tempests enjoys a calm, triumphs in disgraces, grows richer by all its losses, and by death itself attains this immortal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that the glory to be revealed will be a glory beyond anything we could imagine, a glory beyond anything that would ever be earned by us in a million years. It's the glory purchased by the Son of God, the joy that's unspeakable, uh, the privilege of seeing Christ in his glory, of being his forever, worshiping and adoring him who redeemed us. We pray, our God in heaven, that you might, by your grace, strengthen us to live for your glory uh, in this world, sometimes this world of suffering, uh, remembering that we are yours always uh, and having joy in that one fact. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.